Hello, Art and Labor listeners. Hey, uh, guys. What's up? We're wow. all here. <laughs> it's chaos over here. We're bringing you another uh, school special. Um, this time it is from our dear friend Hannah from Looky Here in Greenfield, Massachusetts. Um, she's doing a discussion in this episode about William Morris. And um, this is kind of like a little spot uh, to announce that her class is up and running so we're starting to read the book called art and labor uh and it rocks it's all about art communes yep go along with the art commune class which is every thursday oh yeah thursdays eight o'clock eastern that's right hop hop on and give us a shoot us a little email get on aboard the oh yeah instructing the real train Go to go to class. Constructingthereal.com because <laughs> the world is ending, but your education doesn't have to. <laughs> William Morris, born in England in 1834 to a wealthy middle-class family with shares in the copper mines. His dad died when he was young, and so the family was live, able to live off of his investment, and it provided Morris with a monthly stipend, which allowed him to fund many of his enterprises. So then he goes to Oxford in 1852 with the intention to study religion, but then he quickly switches to art. Um, He was inspired by the medieval buildings in Oxford, so his main interest was medieval history, medieval architecture. And then he's like, he's really interested in preserving all of these old buildings as well. Um, he's wasn't really raised that religious, but he gets really interested in Christianity and especially the imagery. And he joins this group of painters that call themselves the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. And they believed that the medieval world was purer in form than the post-Renaissance world because it was more closely tied to nature. They also had a pro, they had a lot of problems with, um, the academy, uh, but they didn't like genre painting or the traditional art of the academy and cl- the classical compositions of Raphael. They shared with art critic John Ruskin a dislike for academy painters like Sir Joshua Reynolds, who believed painters should perceive their subjects through generalization and idealization rather than the careful copy of nature. Um, which when I was reading about it, it seemed like that's just kind of his way of defending how he was just painting really fast because he was getting so many commissions. And the pre-Raphaelites just called it sloshy and scampered. And so neither of these are actually, neither of these paintings are painted by Morris, but they're by other painters in the group. Morris really wasn't much of a painter. There's only one painting of his that people know about. Um, and no one really thinks it's that great. But the, the brunette woman is his wife, um, Jane Morris. And the other one is this woman named Lizzie Sedell. Um, and both of them are painted by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. They're painted, the, the one by Jane, or the one of Jane Morris is from 1874. And the other one is from 1851. And Rossetti actually had an affair with both of these women. And they were all just kind of in the same circle. So the pre-Raphaelites kind of morph into later, we'll we'll hear more about them. Um, 
So for Morris, the Middle Ages are a big deal. Uh, guilds were, uh, they provided a way for trade skills to be learned and passed down from generation to generation. Members of a guild had the opportunity to rise in society through hard work. The guild protected members in many ways. Members were supported by the guild if they came onto hard times or were sick, and they controlled the working conditions and the hours of work. The guild also prevented non-guild members from selling competitive project, products. To Morris, the guilds of the Middle Ages represented an era that cared about the worker and the quality of their product, which is the opposite of what he was noticing about the second wave industrialization that was all over London. Um, so yeah, this is in the 1850s and rapid industrialization of the English economy cost many craft workers their jobs. The transition from hand production methods to machines alienated artisans from the design and the execution of their work. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, most of the workforce was employed in agriculture, either as self-employed farmers, landowners, or tenants. And it was common for families to spin yarn, weave cloth, make their own clothing. Um, and how, and households would do it. They, there was cottage industry, so people were producing their own, their own wares. But with mechanization, it was possible to produce faster and cheaper merchandise, leading to mass production and removing the designer from the fabrication process. These changes and their working conditions caused considerable questioning in art. What was the place of the artist or the craftsman if machines replaced them? What was allowed to be called art? What are the moral responsibilities of an artist? The arts and crafts movement in Britain was born out of an increasing understanding that society needed to adopt a different set of priorities in relation to the manufacture of objects. Its leaders wanted to develop products that not only had more integrity, but were also made in a less dehumanizing way. The arts and crafts movement developed from these interrogations. Um, this is an image by Walter Crane. It was a ticket to the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society. William Morris is considered the father, <laughs> the big daddy of the arts and crafts movement. Um, but he, the, the granddaddy is John Ruskin. Morris and lots of the other members of the arts and crafts movement and the pre-Raphaelites too, were all very inspired by John Ruskin, who was an art critic. Um, so I'm just gonna do a quick aside on Ruskin because he's credited so much. Um, he was a, you know, he was a good artist, I guess, in his own right, but he wasn't really known for that. He was a very highly respected critic. Um, he was widely trusted authority on taste. He was a writer, professor, and critic who believed the machine dehumanized the worker and led to a loss of dignity because it removed him from the artistic process and thus nature itself. He believed that the artist's main duty is to observe and express nature which is a representation of God's goodness. Art that captures this truth to nature could therefore uplift the morality of the viewer. Um, Ruskin promoted women's education, carried out lectures to laborers, and he would go on to improve the conditions for working classes. He spent his own money setting up the Guild of St. George in 1871, which provided land where people could work cooperatively. And that's what this photo is um, from the Guild of St. George. He targeted three main areas of English life in need of support and improvement, art education, craft work, and the rural economy. 
he hoped to promote the understanding and appreciation of good art, to encourage craftsmanship rather than mass production, and to revive what we would now call sustainable agriculture and horticulture. He was trying to create, in effect, an alternative to the industrial capitalism, which was ravishing the country. Okay, but this is all William Morris's work. Morris adopted Ruskin's philosophy by re of rejecting the capitalist industrial manufacture of decorative arts and architecture in favor of a return to hand craftsmanship, raising artisans to the status of artists, creating art that should be affordable and handmade with no hierarchy of artistic mediums. That's also kind of a big deal with arts and crafts too, is they are doing a lot of uh, homemaking and really considering that equal to painting, tapestry, all of the other things. There's no hierarchy of artistic medium and that everything has just as much care and intention to detail. Um, arts and crafts artisans practice all sorts of handiwork as did Morris himself, whose mediums of choice often influenced others to follow suit. Morris was an architect, a furniture builder, a stained glass designer and fabricator, an embroiderer, a weaver, a dyer, a textile and wallpaper pattern designer, a writer, illustrator, printmaker, translator, and poet. And he wanted everybody to have time to make art. Um, that's kind of the big thing. He believed that art was joy in making. And he was worried that industrialization stole that joy and the precious time to make art. He kind of believed that uh, if everyone had free time, they would use that free time to make art. Yeah. yeah. I like to believe that too, but I don't know if it's true. <laughs> um, he really wanted art made by the people for the people as a maker to, or as a joy to the maker and the user. He was really just encouraging everyone to be able to make their own things and to, you know, make beautiful things for their home and their life and their friends. Um, Morris believed that the arts and crafts movement was much more than just a design theory. If the quality of design was improved, the character of the individual producing that design would be improved, hence society would be improved. So the first thing, the first big project he does is the Red House, which becomes his family home. He marries um, Jane and they have some kids and him and his, all of his friends work on this house together. Philip Webb is the architect. So these are his Philip Webb's drawings of the Red House. And it was um, a bit, it was a big difference. Uh, it was a big change in architecture. It was a lot simpler and um, really inspired by medieval design. It was constructed using Morris's ethos of craftsmanship and artisan skills. And as an early example of what was to become the arts and crafts movement. He and his friends and family designed and built the house as well as all of the furniture and decoration. The house was radically different from the typical Victorian home which had become full of mass produced decoration. The Red House was simple, spacious and utilitarian. It was the physical representation of some of his most famous ideals. If I were asked to say, what is at once the most important production of art and the thing most to be longed for, I should answer, a beautiful house. Um, <laughs> but the, and it is beautiful, simple, maybe not, but um, 
he, he says, if you want a golden rule that will fit everything, this is it. Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Um, and so a lot of the, the work that him and his friends did at the Red House was kind of the prototype for the design firm that they started afterwards, where they were making these chairs, these cabinets, um, all, all of these items that they first made for the Red House, they then made a catalog and started producing them and selling them. They also got a lot of commissions from churches because again, he was really interested in restoring old buildings. Um, and so, and part of that was churches and they did a lot of stained glass windows in churches. The group hoped to reinstate decoration as one of the fine arts and adopted an ethos of affordability and anti-elitism. The products created by the firm included furniture, architectural carving, metalwork, stained glass windows, and murals. Despite Morris's anti-elitist ethos, the firm soon became increasingly popular and fashionable with the bourgeoisie. As a result of his growing sympathy for the working class and poor, Morris felt personally conflicted in serving the interests of these individuals, privately describing it as ministering to the swinish luxury of the rich. The firm's design became the safe choice of the intellectual classes. It was an exercise in political correctitude, um, which is interesting. I've, I've read other things too, where it was that actually people had no idea about his politics when they were purchasing these, these products. Um, Whereas I read this other thing where it was like, oh no, people were aware of it and it was, they were doing it on purpose with intention to, you know, be choosing the politically correct product. Um, the arts and crafts movement as it developed in Britain could not durably trump technical and social advantages of the industrial era. Arts and crafts furniture proved to be too expensive for average families to buy, making large scale diffusion impossible. However, the movement contributed to creating public awareness of the appreciation of authentic and handmade crafts. Ironically, the fashionable arts and crafts designs became an inspiration for mechanized mass-produced furniture pieces, which led to its decline, though they're still produced today. <laughs> um, so that uh, rendition of the firm had some problems, it dissolved, that kind of version of it dissolved, Morris took over it a little bit more and moved the um, firm from London to Merton Abbey Works, which is in the countryside. This is in 1881. The premises was used for weaving, dyeing, and creating stained glass. And within three years, a hundred craftsmen were employed there. Working conditions of the Abbey were better than at most Victorian factories. However, despite Morris's ideals, there was little opportunity for the workers to display their own individual creativity. He was um, pretty adamant though that people weren't doing like the same repetitive task over and over again. Like if you're building a chair, you would build the entire chair from start to finish. You weren't like only sanding chair legs every day, all day. So there was that. <laughs> um, he had indicated a system of profit sharing among the firm's upper clerks. However, he did not include a majority of the workers who were instead employed on piecework basis. 
Morris was aware that in retaining the division between employer and employed, the company failed to live up to its own egalitarian ideals. But he defended this, asserting that it was impossible to run a socialist company within a competitive capitalist economy. Uh, in 1891, disillusioned by the contradictions of the design firm, Morris founded Clemscott Press. Um, and he printed classics like Chaucer, which is this one, um, as well as his own writing and translations of Icelandic poems, which was kind of another one of his hobbies was going to Iceland and translating poems and stuff. Uh, he developed his own fonts and he used traditional printing methods, a hand-driven press, handmade paper, and many woodcut block illustrations, which were designed and produced by himself and his friend, fellow pre-Raphaelite Edward Byrne Jones. So <laughs> I think it's so incredible that this, this is all woodblock, this whole book. It's so beautiful, so beautiful. So by this time, he is a full-blown committed revolutionary socialist activist. He becomes a leading figure in the socialist lead. He even founds his own branch in 1884. And he'd often deliver speeches and talks on street corners in working men's clubs, art schools, lecture theaters across England and Scotland. He edited and published socialist magazines, writing socialist articles, poems, and novels. Um, one novel that is really fun, maybe I'll post the, the link to the um, LibriVox recording of it. It's called News From Nowhere, and it is a utopian fantasy about, I think, the year 2010 really good. So he dies <laughs> in 1896 at the age of 62, um, having already inspired uh, a movement. And there was already some guilds that started um, that he was part of uh, in his time. And it, I mean, he got wildly popular in the United States and all around the world. His design company, printing press, revolutionary writings, and ethos on art and life have and remain to inspire artists and art movements. He was a major contributor to the revival of traditional British textiles, methods, and productions. His influence is apparent in the Bauhaus movement, Art Nouveau, and all artist books, including those of futurists and Dadaists. The arts and crafts movement spread through Europe and America, influencing Albert Hubbard, Frank Lloyd Wright, and many others who sought to beautify and simplify the lives of the working class through the practice and production of handcraft. <sighs> Morris's design work can now be found on mass-produced kitsch items all around the world. The irony is almost lost because this was even an issue during his time. Um, so it's just wild that it's still happening. It's still so popular. Um, but he was a man who embodied enormous contradictions all the time. He was an environmentalist who derided industrialization and urbanization, yet spent much of his life working in London. He was a socialist who designed luxury goods for the wealthy and predicted the demise of capitalism. And though his hands and mind were always busy with his own work, he managed the hands and minds of his employees as well providing them with nicer but still laborious employment. By 1910, arts and crafts is no longer really considered chic or avant-garde. It starts to become commercialized already. Um, and another kind of crazy thing is that the 
oak that was being used was depleted. They used, they used up a lot of the oak. So they kind of changed a lot of the design. They were started to use other wood like cherry and walnut, but kind of ironic. Um, so, so yeah, but it's still, it's these, these chairs are still produced. I mean, H&M did a collaboration with Morrison Co. There's iPhone cases and like the, the chairs are still very popular. The classic Morris chair, what's called a Morris chair wasn't actually designed by him, but it's influenced by him and the arts and crafts design technique. <laughs> um, and it's extremely popular as well. And the things about it are that and which which does kind of uh flow into Bauhaus too is that it is supposed to be fairly cheap very well designed um and long lasting well made but also Morris's big thing is is the pleasure in making and that everyone should be able to have the time to have pleasure in making and so that is it. Yay! Hooray! Good, I loved it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry about my internet connection. Yeah, it's not your fault though. It's fine. You're fine. Okay. Yeah, there's there's the dude. The dude himself. This is a good slide though. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. And then good he job. died. And then he died. Yeah. They, everyone, they say he died just by being William Morris. That's what his doctor said, because he did more than any other man. Wow. <laughs> just so, so busy. That's a medical Super opinion. Busy. That's a medical <laughs> opinion. The other, another interesting thing, it's just, is that he knew and was totally fine with his wife having affairs their whole marriage. It's kind of cool. <laughs> Progressive. That's William cool. Morris. Yeah. Yeah. And so just about how this ties in a little bit to the art commune class is that the whole book, the whole, that whole arts and labor book is about all of the American spinoffs on arts and crafts communities and the way that they tried to make capitalist versions, Americanized capitalist versions of William Morris's ideal community, ideal craftsman community. And it's interesting, I think. And yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, like, but I, yeah, because it, it sounds like, like this is the type of stuff like, like to me, like, I don't know, we, sometimes we, we bump up against like, um, big, like craft, like movements and nationalism. And then you're crafting like, a, a, a language for a country to adopt or something. Um, and yeah. And I, yeah, I wonder if, if that sort of stuff just gets like taken and ran with or, but yeah, and to me, it was actually, it feels like 
William Morris was kind of like, um, it, it, I don't know. It's, it's like a, it's more of like an Easter egg of American history. He's not like a front and center, like, um, like super, I don't know. Um, I don't think it ever got like wide, widely adopted. Um, but like people who are in the know, like, like you said, like he catered to luxury buyers. So I think like it was, it seems like it was popular in it that sect, in, but it was in like Macy's. No. Yeah. Yeah. It was in Macy's and in, in the, the H and M collab and, and these types of things. But then it's like, why didn't it carry? I don't know. Like why didn't it keep carrying until like now? I don't I, like, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, well, I mean, he, he is like one of the biggest known names in like functional design but yeah like i don't know like hannah was covering just um you know the way that his politics were completely divorced from the objects like and i think that might be one of the reasons why we don't really have a conversation about him as much because it's like i mean it you know in furniture and design circles it's really like oh yeah these chairs are basically like a lot of the furniture it's not only like macy's or whatever it's like a a lot of designers are still um like you know there was like martha stewart's shabby chic or whatever was just like take a william morris design and like put extra fluff in it or so you know what i mean it's like that lineage makes a lot of sense yeah, um, it, it goes and gets adopted by a lot of um, just other capitalist uh, designers. And um, yeah, that might be, maybe that's it. Yeah. Or there's no, just a lot of straight up just taking other people's designs. Uh, I, like I, I, have, I have been an artisan um and it was funny like the presentation spoke to a lot of the same experiences I've had working for these like you know design build studios and um (laughs) yeah like it's better but it's still insane and then like you're there's and he's right when it is like there's no way to really compete as a worker cooperative with capitalist companies so at least yeah it, it also kind of reminded me of the um oneida oneida like yeah. silverware company um was actually this like poly sex cult um but they also made like a ton of silverware and that's like yeah Silverware came later for them. That was like after they already got canceled for the sex cult thing. They had to leave. They started in Putney, Vermont, which is where I lived last year. Oh, shit. (laughs) And then they moved to Oneida, New York and started the silverware thing. But they had a big bonfire where they burned all of the records that they were keeping on. um, They were they were basically uh, uh, what's it called? He was he was like trying to breed the perfect the perfect person. So they were inbreeding a lot. And he was like trying to like breed different people's genes together. And then there was also this creepy thing where like adults were supposed to initiate children in sex 
Come on. Then about it. And then when that kind of, when people got freaked out by that, they burned all of the evidence of it and then moved to New York and started making silverware. <laughs> That's wild. I thought they, there was one in the same project. So much worse than orange records. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, I guess like, yeah, I don't understand like why it didn't quite catch on as like, uh, I, 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 yeah, I, or I don't understand why, um, I, or maybe there's like a campaign to like uh, obfuscate this history is what I'm trying to say or something. Yeah, there actually, there's a, there's actually a really good passage about um, what happened to William Morris's socialist beliefs uh in the marketplace in the in the um uh the mammon book that i was reading Mm -hmm. uh because at least in that history like hannah you were mentioning that it's a little bit um confusing like what happened with his writings and everything um but basic like this this history was saying that his like he he was always a pamphleteer and he was always really vocal but then that he had um he had like people in the market helping him sell stuff and they just didn't talk about it Mm -hmm. and they and they talked instead about like sort of like the beauty of nature and like godliness is in nature and so like godliness is in the chair because there's a leaf pattern on it and like and that just became the selling point for a lot of people. But then he was writing about stuff that was really explicit. Like he writes about how communism is um, like the inevitable end um, of like, like the, the progression of society. Yeah. Yeah. And he was reading Marx and I've seen like he spoke with Engels. He was in all of that um and it's just it's cur- like I wonder what he, he was alive before it all went down so I wonder if it would be possible I mean his his book News from Nowhere is really interesting just not because it seems possible but just because that's what he thought could be possible or what he hoped was possible um and, and it's like, you know, egalitarian, people don't have to work, people don't have money, uh, everyone's just kind of like floating around doing whatever job they are interested in, but then they can like switch whenever they want to. It's nice. But I was gonna say, um, his daughter, May Morris, she was a huge spokesperson for him. And especially after he died, she was really trying to like make sure that his political views were understood, especially when his work was being shown or when people were praising him and saying that they were inspired by him, she would call them out if they weren't being true to his ideals, mm. which was pretty cool. And she like her and, and so, and Jane Burden, they were also um, a big part of the firm doing a lot of the embroidery and, and making the designs too not necessarily credited all the time but may morris does have her own kind of career after her dad dies 
she goes to the United States too and like talks to a lot of like we'll read about her in this in this art and labor book she kind of rips them <laughs> it's awesome it seems like it didn't really catch on in socialist countries either like it it caught on maybe more because Frank Lloyd Wright really you can really feel that coming out of this but yeah any country like that actually had a socialist revolution like is really far from this aesthetic it seems yeah 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 because i think they were it was easier i guess to have mass production mm-hmm. right yeah. when you're trying to have socialism it was easier to just provide people with mass-produced items yeah he's making these books by hand a lot with these wood blocks and i wonder how like did they even circulate that far um yeah his, his magazines and probably not they were just you know tossed around locally probably but the books were probably extremely expensive and maybe collected, but not like widely uh, distributed. Yeah, he's kind of, I think maybe considered as like a, a theoretical communist because his way of operating is, is like, um, it's sort of an idealist form of being a laborer where he has like the complete control over his artisan practice. So it's like he gets to put in all of this effort and flourish and consideration and study into it. But then a lot of like socialist countries um, focus on the like concepts of utilitarianism and just like, how can you have something that is, that's, that's useful. And like the object expresses usefulness instead of expressing like a reverence for something outside of the object. Cause that's like kind of bourgeois. Yeah, I guess he had the religious thing going on too, which is. Yeah. Yeah, I was having a conversation earlier today, actually, about, like, how sometimes when, like, that there are these maybe two main avenues that if you're trying to convince someone to to be a socialist, um, you kind of either go down, like, the moral route, where it's, you know, it's inherently better to, for things to be equal for people, or you kind of go more in the, like, self-interest side where it's it's of the worker's self-interest to you know uh partly own the product of their labor and uh and so when I was asking somebody who knows a little more than me like what do you do when you feel like because people will often run run through one and then switch to the other if they're getting too much resistance um and their answer was more like talking about how, how Marx was very like, was very purposefully trying to like differentiate himself from utopian socialism. And I think it was like, because utopian socialism was always this extremely, yeah, Christian based, um, Christian based 
thing or movement and like, like when I'm thinking about how people were able to divorce the work from the politics, I think that's something that happens a lot in like utopian socialists or even like Anabaptist, like Mennonite communities and stuff where like there are these politics that are supposed to be like socialism because God says socialism is good but then they can kind of spiral out into this other stuff because they don't have they don't have a really specific material relationship to those politics I don't know if that makes sense but uh it like I think a lot about Hutterites in Canada mm. like they don't own anything they all collectively farm but like girls can't like grow up to be writers and I think yeah you're you're kind of getting it and, and Hannah talked about that in a little in the presentation about how like they're going from kind of being in in these like guilds and like you're you're kind of in like owner operator world and then industrialization is happening it's like forcing your community into like downward mobility or, or something or like um you're it, it's going to shift the class dynamic of your area um and and so i think yeah some of these like um christian influenced and or christian based like um folks are coming from coming from like knowing like they know that it's possible to maintain this like um these sort of like you know nodes of community that like yeah um we do artisan all of this and we own uh the farms and then you know or we you, you have a different relationship you're less alienated from labor um in in these types of communities and then they they see it um slipping away they see it changing mm-hmm. yeah yeah, that was, yeah, Hannah was kind of mentioning the medieval, um, like, admir- admiration for the period. But, yeah, everyone was, like, writing about the medieval commons at that time and such an ideal, like, people actually worked less hours during every day. And even if they had a feudal lord, they still, like, could make demands on the lord and like could keep the things they grew and yeah, yeah they kind of they kind of realize they have the most to to lose or something so i was also thinking about this in relation to um Picabo when nathan presented because he was so this is i mean he's like kind of the next generation who's cut, who's born into the industrial revolution and thinks it's awesome. Whereas Morris kind of sees what happened, what life was like before industrialization. I'm glad you made that connection. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. fascinating. It's, it's almost like Picabia and Duchamp were the anti Morris in the sense they wanted to get away from the hand made, you know what I mean? Or that, that carrying the meaning the hand in the beauty of the handmade carrying the, you know, the idea and, and they were like kind of break away from that, you know? And it seems like it's just necessary, like, because they were 
they're born into it. They, they mm-hmm. don't recognize or appreciate the beauty in the machine, whereas Morris is only seeing how the machine is changing what he saw as the glory days of medieval times. And then I try to think about what that is like now, like a hundred years later with technology and, and children who are born into the internet. Because I feel like we're kind of in a similar position where we kind of knew what life was like before the internet. And now people are born into the internet and it's just, it's, they just have a different understanding of it. And they're gonna, you know, maybe love it the way Duchamp and Picavia love machines. And maybe, I, I don't know, I just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make that connection and it's not all the way there, but there's, there's some of it is coming together for me, I guess. Well, it's not there because it's still, it's happening right now. We don't know, I think. It remains to be seen. And yet there does seem to be a pattern. Yeah. At least that's what I see. It's very interesting. Thank you for the presentation. Oh, you're welcome. Glad you enjoyed it or learned something. To to bring it into a kind of the modern context of the internet the whole time you were presenting I was thinking a lot about um, the documentary Feels Good Man about Pepe and when you're talking about um, William Morris and like selling things to you know like this elite class the partnerships with these you know like worldwide brands and kind of like the inverse where Pepe was just like a random meme that then gets taken right and then gets perverted in a sense Mm -hmm. in which no one you know like you can't use pepe as a good symbol anymore because he's literally a nazi like gassing jews right and this idea of trying to make something so horrendous that no one else can use it where this is sitting in the the natural right in the patterns of this connection to the handmade to what's outside our window in a way that it it is so universal in a way that anyone can use it and that's why it can now be on an iphone case mm-hmm. hannah can i ask you a question about yeah. um is there in the art and labor book does it talk about um I know we talked a little bit about Frank Lloyd Wright. I think uh, Jesse brought up Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, is there like any connection, like uh, like Gustav Stickley or oh, like oh William? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to in a mean way. I, no, 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 no. <laughs> Stickley, I'm Stickley I, made I, the Morris chair. Okay. Mm. Cool. Yeah, he is. He's heavily influenced by all of this. I mean. Yeah. Uh, it's it Frank Lloyd Wright is an arts and crafts designer that's sure. his style sure so yeah so that's kind of says up will that be in the book an art and labor book or yeah. okay cool yeah that's exciting uh, yeah there's it is exciting there's there's actually so many different interesting communities that cropped up around these ideas and yeah. different art practices and and different 
lots of lots of entrepreneurs and businesses um and i am particularly interested in it and drawn to it because i resonate with a lot of it <laughs> i want to build a beautiful home it's all i want to do i just and yeah. it's like that just feels like if i can make a beautiful home make all of my things that's what would make me happy I don't know if I can say that I think that's what's going to make everybody happy, but if they had the opportunity to do it, I don't see why they wouldn't be down. <laughs> I like I like how you made like a beautiful presentation too, like a collaged yeah. presentation. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun. Oh. I, yeah, I, yeah, I guess the, the, the disconnect that I keep having, and I'm sorry, I sound like kind of babbling about it, but it's like, um, it seems like it was very influential to the art communities that saw like that c- could like read the books or like could um, experience the art. Um, but it's uh, like to me, as far as like revolutionary art, it it failed in hooking in like we were talking about before into the socialist movement. Mm. And, ma- and maybe if maybe if he had like in addition to like the nice handmade one-of-a-kind books um done done some more mass-produced theory so that people can hook in not just the, see the the beauty on its own and want to put it on want to want to put it on their wall or put it on an iphone case or whatever so it, it would be more linked i don't know all of his lectures are published and were published pretty quickly i mean that then he didn't even he maybe put out editions of some of them, but they're published and are still being published. I have multiple different editions of his lectures and essays that are very explicitly socialist. And also he was giving lectures to art students and also just on the street corners and giving he was, out- He was trying, he was trying yeah. to get it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think yeah. that it did get, it wasn't only for the elite. Like I read a thing where the, the Morris chair or the, um, what's it called? The Sussex chair, which is the one, this one. Oh, well, that's the current version of it. Uh, these chairs, these chairs, you, someone could buy an average worker could buy on 10 hours of work. The equivalent of 10 hours of work could buy you a chair which was you know if you've ever tried to buy a new chair these days chairs are like three hundred dollars like a wooden chair um, yeah nice a nice wooden chair it's yeah i mean and currently these style chairs online are like three hundred dollars which you know if you're making fifteen dollars an hour times 10 is 150 <laughs> so I guess it's a little we would we're still paying more than 10 hours of labor of our you know working labor for those chairs but it was somewhat affordable to middle class um but yeah so it was it was revolutionary in its in its day you'd say I mean, I, I think so, but I can hear that you're saying you don't think it is because you don't think it actually reached the 
socialist. I, I, like, yeah, did it not reach? I don't know. I just, yeah, I just don't understand, like, um, why it's not like taught, like in in a lot of um, it, it's it, it, it's it feels like to me that there's like an intentional obfuscation going on of this history. That you hadn't really learned much about it. Before. Yeah, not until like recent years, like way post college, and um, and I'm a printmaker too, and I don't oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not sure why it's. I mean, he fits the bill. He's like you know a bearded old white man from England like (laughs) there's no reason to discriminate against him he didn't have a crazy sex cult like he was he was he was pretty good and normal um (laughs) so I don't know why but or yeah it is is weird though like (laughs) those those textiles and those wallpaper patterns are everywhere but you don't necessarily hear about his politics you don't necessarily learn about them I guess yeah like they're definitely very recognizable I mean mean, but maybe similar for Guernica I would say like people yeah that painting and they don't know what it's about but like we talked about that in the Guernica talk too where like I had to color that in in art class and we didn't learn about it we just we just like coloring booked it yeah there's there's failures of the american public education system at work (laughs) but even even to connect it to think about Vinny's presentation right like you could see those you could see the sculpture right and one there's the the originals right which are really expensive right and only held by museums but people are uploading things online to make them but also like if you are playing with them in a museum right like you're not being told the politics you're just like ooh, look at the hinges flip right like it's so easy to strip any of the any of the artist's intention from whatever the work is whether it's Guernica which I think I was one of the people that was like I never learned about that I just remember seeing a picture of it and being like this is Picasso or whether you're talking about the sculptures or these chairs right at the end of the day it's like that's where I put my butt like (laughs) you know like how is there politics in it it's literally it's literally four legs with a flat surface for me to sit my ass I guess uh, the, like, uh, what kind of society you're going to build coming out of the kind of production that you do, you know, like if you're growing sugar cane, you'll make one kind of society. And if you're making crafts like this, you'll make another kind. I feel like it comes from that intention anyway. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, also, they weren't farming or growing their food. Ruskin was, or he was trying to. Um, But, like, that's the other thing. Like, Morris had, you know, house servants. He had people working for him. He was was busy. Mm -hmm. Like, he was, like, he he introduced natural dyes back into, into popularity. Like, natural dyes had been replaced by like new chemical dyes but then he like re- brought natural dyes back in and like was re-experimenting with all of these he also i wanted to, like 
um, okay, you mentioned nationalism. I think that's a big part of it too, is he's like bringing back embroidery and all of these handcrafts that were kind of like going away or it wasn't really, a, it wasn't part of a woman's life anymore to like sit by the fire and embroider the same way it once was. And so that art form comes back, same with tapestry weaving um, and stained glass. It really is coming back from the guilds and it is, I guess, a nationalist idea of bringing these traditional crafts back into practice. Uh, often, yeah, often you need a type of nationalism to make a, um, some sort of revolutionary movement. Like, like Guernica too, it's like a, a nationalist piece, um, you know, for, for a, a place that was, you know, un under attack, you know, by, by bombs, but like it, I, so I think it makes sense, like to build, to build an, a, a certain nationalism if you're trying to build a movement. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it, it makes sense. Um, and I think it makes sense that like at a certain point, the American elite or the Amer American like bourgeoisie, like were like, they pivoted to like thinking about a different type of artwork than this. Um, uh, and, you know, perhaps like, that's why it's like um, not, you know, in the forefront of the American artistic uh, history consciousness or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look, if, if you, if you read more of like the pamphlets that William Morris was putting out, you know, it's not really clear exactly how he wants to enact his politics either. It's sort of like an expanded version of Trotsky's like towards a revolutionary art where it's very like, he's an idealist and you know, he, he wants there to be a better world and he wants to manufacture objects that bring beauty into the world. But he's not like, here's how we're going to, um, like, you know, get the proletariat to you rise into a new consciousness or something. It's like, it would be cool if we could do that. And it would be nice in a world where that happened and it could look like this and that would be great. And, you know, and he spends a lot of time also like struggling with authority in an interesting way. Cause um, like during that time, he was also having conversations between like, what is anarchy and what is socialism and like, is socialism a half measure and is it better to be like, you know, aiming for full communism, but like, what is it? And, you know, like to look at a thinker who's going through all of these concepts without really staking a flag and being like, I'm this, it means this, we're going to rally the troops. We're going to make a move on the government. You know what I mean? It's just like, it doesn't have a place to attach all the time. Like, it's just that, you know, he has a heart of, he has this in his heart while he's yeah. making this stuff, which makes it beautiful. But it's like a different kind of politics. 
And I think that's why it doesn't get taught as often, even as often as like Guernica or something, because Guernica was very, it, it was an act of like obvious aggression towards like a horror or towards the horrors of war, just to use art as like a weapon against violence. But this is like, doesn't have the same direction. Yeah, I, yeah. My my problem. I keep trying to put things in boxes, and I'm, I'm sorry if I come off as like. No, it's okay. I mean, yeah, because the well, yeah. It's just it's harder because this movement also is in some ways a reaction to industrialization instead of something that's like, oh, here is what you know. Like, like, um, like constructivism, right? It's mm -hmm. very much like here are positive terms in which we're going to describe our our actions. Here's the manifestos, and this is sort of like we need to go back to a thing. We need to go back to the before times, but in a, you know, instead of like the future is going to look like this and we're going to craft it. It's like, what if we could craft a romantic, bettered version of the thing that we lost? It feels very in line with like book gen, which I think makes sense. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I think book gen even references more as like, um, yeah, because his whole thing is, is sort of like, um, is, it's very like American, like, an, like, oh, maybe an American socialism would look like a return to um, these different like no, nodes of communities, um, like, lo like localized like economies type thing, uh, a bunch of cooperatives. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't like that. I don't know. That kind of is interesting to me that he doesn't like he's afraid of being called an anarchist and yet like he goes back and forth between it of like, oh no, we should have these small communities and we should be having everyone um, realize like, you know, the workers power. But then, then he, he has this like vision of authority as being something that could be wielded by the masses, but without it, being bad somehow. <laughs> yeah, there was a moment in the talk uh, concerning that question of like authority and anarchism. I think Hannah, you said something like that he believed that this is like where he's wishy-washy. It sounded like you were saying, like mm -hmm. if people had free time, they would make beautiful art themselves. But then you said something like, but he wasn't quite sure about that. Like he well, didn't- Maybe I said, I'm not quite- Oh, as oh you weren't. <laughs> um, because he, I think that he really does believe that everyone is an artist and if everyone had the time to make art, they would. Oh, okay. And yeah. I, I, I had said, I like to believe that also, but I'm not, sh I'm not as sure of it as maybe he was. Yeah. I rem it reminds me of some YouTube video I saw. It was like, Noam Chomsky talking about Bakunin. It was like this short little thing where he 
it was it kind of made it sound like that faith in people's generative ability is really the dividing line between being you know i don't know i like if you don't have that it's going to go into some kind of authoritarian thing but if you do have that you have something to base everything else on one thing that's interesting too is um like i wonder if a lot of this and it must have uh helped create the popularity for like historical reenactment like mm. the, like your colonial williamsburg and your Wheatland village and all that stuff like when did that all pop off you know and like does that like have stemmed from you know it seems like it stems from william morris's ideas of like back to you know the traditional crafts back to learning how to do you know teaching people the traditional ways of doing things and that kind of stuff you know like the pre-Raphaelites are definitely cosplaying. They are, they're dressing up as medieval people and painting portraits of each other in, in that, in those clothes. <laughs> the Pennsylvania Renaissance Fair of, you know. Yeah. Cottage core. <laughs> even the new Adam Curtis doc talks about how this like, you know, idealized um, town you know, was a, a, you know, some sort of like propaganda campaign to, to influence the way, you know, people have a uh, feel about their national identity or whatever. That seems like, uh, I remember like in Russian novels, the, the people or some 19th century thing, like the, the, the well-off would have, you know, like a lathe in their house so they could practice some artisanal thing just for their just to kind of get their own creative energies out not to really make furniture but just to just for recreation you know kind of like how people were sold pianos like a lot of people just Mm. had pianos even if they weren't really musicians it was just kind of like a an idyllic piece of furniture to have in a cultured home Please see my table saw in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lathe. That's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't know. It's like uh, you just give me a log and I'll go <laughs> fire up my lathe. <laughs> yeah, I think there is this like kind of divide between like people who have like direction if they're like um you know, if it left, like if they lose their job or something, they're like, I have all this shit I know how to do. I feel very empowered to work on them and I have all this time now and I can do it. Um, and then people who lose their job and it's just like this huge despair because like the job was their whole identity and like where, what can they do now and where can they go? Or there's a global pandemic and the entire world is forced inside. <laughs> And how do we how do we occupy ourselves when we can't go to the corner bar? Like, let's make sourdough bread or <laughs> like whatever else, right? Like the return the return to self sufficiency mm-hmm. as a way as a way to occupy our time because we can't distract ourselves with the modern world and like we don't want to be on zoom calls for more hours a day 
yeah, maybe it's a type of bourgeois decadence to be able to think about um, craft in a home. I was sort of thinking that because I was like, you know, yes, I love, I fucking love decorating where I live. Like, I fucking love it. But I'm also like, where I live isn't a home because I don't own it. And I have, and I don't really have an illusion about being able, I mean, maybe someday I, I don't want to, the secret myself <laughs> or anti the secret myself, but like the, the way the world's been going, I, it just feels like I'm always going to be in an apartment. And then I think about like the, you know, majority of people who are even worse off than me and like, who they'll never be able to, you know, decorate their homes with beautiful shit. I mean, this is the proliferation of Ikea because it's, it's cheap. You don't have to fucking think about it. And, you know, you're moving all the time anyway. Um, so actually, <laughs> that's another one of the spinoffs that we'll read about in the art and labor book is like this women's group that uses a lot of these Morris ideals to talk to immigrants in the United States about the kinds of things they should have in their home to keep things simple. And they tell that they like pretty much are like telling them what good taste is and what simple taste is and like not to have too many things only have in your home what you find useful or beautiful. And like, don't, you know, you don't want to clutter your house with all these things that you're going to have to tidy all the time. Really Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo. I know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That segment is gets gets really creepy especially since it's like these well-meaning white women in the cities <laughs> trying to tell immigrants how to keep their houses um but they you know they they are inspired by William Morris's ideals while they're while they're doing this it's like it feels like music is the art form that people use for that claiming their space that's like the first step in that direction more often than not like putting on the radio right yeah i just mean like if you want to make your place your own and you feel alienated because your surroundings are you know not what you want it's kind of it's kind of like faster and more kind of all surrounding to to uh you know use music for the for that transformation or you know if you're surrounded by the kind of music that you like it's i don't know well you're literally filling the entire space in a way that hanging a painting is only one wall right but they're not also not really even talking about hanging a painting they're talking about having like a beautiful Mm. dishcloth yeah, like, just be happy with that. Yeah, yeah be happy with your beautiful dishcloth. You don't need to hang a painting. Got that painting stuff. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to comment on, okay, like, the idea of, right, the moving and properties and all that and, like, her owning property and just, like, how popular it is to just, like, look at Zillow or... uh this old house like w- like website that just lists like old homes for sale that are in the middle of fucking nowhere as our you know like u.s population urbanizes and also 
like rural populations age and you're just like yeah you could move to rural iowa for a hundred thousand dollars and like then what well you're literally on the frontier again because there's literally nothing there that like can support your life yeah or i was thinking to like the oh sorry am i interrupting go ahead I was, I was just going to say really quick that um, we talked about on the podcast once there, there was this like, there was like this article or something. And it was talking about how like, you know, in the future, you don't need kitchen. We'll just like live in dorms and have a shared kitchen. And it's like, oh, and, and some people are like, oh yeah, well that's communism. Or like, uh, like, and it's like, oh, no, dude, that made no. me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, And it's, yeah. And it's like, um, like, sure i'm for a communal kitchen i think that's a beautiful thing um but it's like yeah it's, it's austerity it's austerity brain it's like um you know uh get used to not having things brain like we're kind of talking about <laughs> yeah like just like the concept of degrowth right and that like we should we should sacrifice the efficiencies and things of society when really all that means is that the people that own the most are going to be able to have even exert even more control over the masses. The great reset, baby. We're all going to uh, rent and like it. Ugh. <laughs> rent everything. Yeah. I used to be like really obsessed with tiny houses and the tiny house movement which is like the perfect, the perfect storm of people who want to make their own house. Um, people who are trying to kind of like uh, normalize poverty or normalize really homelessness. Um, when, and, and I kind of had to, uh, and it sucked because it's like, it would, there's, there's like an attraction to, I think like multi-use stuff or like, there is something fun about super efficient spaces, but uh, as soon as you figure out that all the apartment buildings in your neighborhood are empty of the big ones, then uh, why should we have micro apartments? You know? We're not actually there yet. Like there's yeah. all this. Right. <laughs> now, all even the places where they try to like say like, they're not even saying that the U.S. is overpopulated, but they're still trying to get us to act as if we are. Hmm. I mean, yeah, this, this thing also okay. starts like a whole back to the land movement that Morris was doing too. Like he moved his whole industry into the countryside. He was really all about just like, village living and this back to the land thing which is huge again in the are in labor book in the united states like it's all about getting out of the cities going back to the land starting your self-sufficient arts community and the the thing i think that that is still popular i mean like that happened that happened from then until now it's still happening Mm -hmm. oh, oh my god that. yeah i i i'm very appealed by it i'm like <laughs> i'm constantly like in my head like oh queer separatist commune just abandon all this shit live in the woods <laughs> like it's yeah. very 
It's the, it's the, it's like the escape valve of living in, like, in modern society and, like, under capitalism. Is, well, you know what the option is? Just, like, go live on a farm. And then we can just, like, forget everything that burdens us now, even though, like, that isn't true, but, like, you can look at it in this idealized sense of, it's so close, and you know, then I can make my own furniture and I won't need to go to Ikea. And I, I can, you know, I, Hannah, you are even talking about, you know, like wanting to create your own space, right? I mean, that's such just like a night, like such a, I don't know, like human thing to be able to like call something your own or to say that you've had influence over a place and how, I don't know, the escape valve of like, that's the only opportunity to do it paint like can you paint your walls in your apartment like the answer is like no (laughs) yeah it seems like you should be able to have some agency over your life in this way where you can actually build things for your future that you can have that are yours i I have this experience go ahead i'm sorry oh i went to visit my oh are you going no, no, no. Oh, uh, I visited my wife's grandparents in Poland, and they took us to this village. I, it's a preserved village. It's the Skansen, I think is the word for it that they have. And it is, it was beautiful. Every, every surface was decorated in this traditional way. It was, it was kind of, it looked like the interior of the Mor- Morris house a bit. And in the village, there was a place that you could make, you know, uh, textiles and stuff. And then, you know, in in the United States, it's like a, a lot of the, I don't know, the, the buildings are bigger and stuff. But with this in Poland, you'd go back to the place where we were staying with them in the, the actual apartment building they were in was smaller than the Sconson village, you know, hut that they would live in. So it's kind of like, why wouldn't you, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know where, where that lands, but it's like, there's there, the alternative that we went, that people went to wasn't actually a step up kind of, I mean, it was, but it was more, wired and modern but it it was uh spatially really about about as good as the original Mm -hmm. has anybody seen a nomad land yeah um what'd you think i was kind of you know this kind of like roaming you know kind of decoupling from you know right normative society you know kind of but making it their own right like where she's like she builds out i don't want to ruin the movie for anybody but the character like kind of builds out her van you know and makes it her own you know what i mean and to get some agency you know also because she didn't really have money or a place to live sure sure but i mean it's like um she's still making it her own right i mean it's like um 
you know, it's, I don't know. I didn't like, I didn't know if I, the, the film was more of like wanting you to be part of society or like advocating for not being part of society. That's like, you know, that was what was um, not very clear in the film for me, but. I don't know if the film had a particular moral stance on whether you should or shouldn't be like that, but I think it was just presenting this situation, which is that a lot of people in that age group are retiring without enough money to actually be able to comfortably retire, especially a single woman. Um, And so she's kind of forced into this community, but she finds uh, she finds it suits her, I guess. But I don't think that that movie is necessarily promoting the lifestyle, more just kind of doing a portrait of it. Yeah. And but I really, thought it was really nice. Like, yeah, really nice. I enjoyed it. <laughs> what was that? I was just going to say that as a socialist, he would be interested in that in like the situation of people who were displaced by the industrial revolution, right? So he would want to have something ideally for, for them. Mm-hmm. People who were, I mean, and, and what this woman did and some other people, like she made pot holders and she would sell them uh, at little flea markets and stuff. And lots of the other people too were like, making little things (laughs) and she was specifically displaced because the the factory closed right exactly yeah and i don't remember i don't know the name of the movie but there's the movie that's i think coming out this year technically but it's been in film festivals about the villages in florida and this older man is living in his van and trying to find a rich um widow because of the gender imbalance of older people and just trying to like find someone who he can like attach to to not live in his van because he also like doesn't have money and it's just i haven't seen nomadland but just interesting to you know i i have seen this whatever the movie is called about the villages Um, yeah it's kind of similar but you know a little little different but yeah but the same feeling yeah and i guess not to like derail this conversation but i guess like before we like sign off can we like talk about how we think william morris fits on jesse's uh uh scale from materialist to um what is it like more like self-work because i have found that to be such a meaningful exercise that i want to make sure that we do because i think that there's some interesting discussion i don't know like obviously there's a lot of like the material like the material nature of creating like physical objects but how that fits into i don't know everything we've been talking about i think there's some interesting stuff to think about yeah maybe like on that spectrum there's a space for like it's it sort of is somewhere in in the middle of the spectrum it's like the domestic sphere is related to the things you can control yourself but then the revolution comes from like being able to change your environment and then 
change your material reality. So there's like a little bit of internal work and a little bit of external. I think that's a really good way to put it, Lucia, because I was thinking like, like, like talking about the, you know, the, the, la- the ladies who were like, you know, you have these nice potholders, you have these nice utilitarian things. Um, like, I guess I feel like I can attest to like having a couple of nice things when you have like nothing is, is awesome. Like it does, like it is like, oh, I love this thing um, yeah. so much. And, and it's it like does, built like, to last. Yeah, and it really improves your fucking life when you've had you have good shoes for the first fucking time and you're like, holy shit, like <laughs> this rocks. <laughs> like, like and and that that can be a way to like kind of unify people, especially if like I'm kind of thinking about like you know, you know, different movements, um, revolutionary movements where it's like, uh, yeah, we um got this shoe factory in like uh keyed in with us and uh they supplied all of our boots for the revolution and that like (laughs) and these boots rock and we're and we just get to have them uh forever afterwards and then also maybe we could go work at the factory when this whole shit is over i don't know yeah hell yeah (laughs) this revolution is awesome (laughs) new shoes for everyone but it's like those are people you know you start with absolutely fucking nothing and um and so just to to have a thing is amazing um, but yeah, I, yeah, sorry. I don't, I don't know. It, coming from these like kind of more bourgeois white ladies, it's yeah, it, it comes across as kind of like, just, just be happy that you have this, but I could see a way that you, you could present this sort of thing that it's a more expansive uh, thing keyed into a, a revolutionary movement and not just like, we're going to make you like your little fucking Ikea box, you fucking bitch. Like <laughs> we're going to make you like the communal kitchen, you know, <laughs> No. Yeah, no. I think it's more like we're going to make you believe that you can make your own beauty in the world. I and think that's really it. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. really it that sticks that like really sticks with me where it's not he's trying to take the elitism out of all of the arts and just kind of presented as if like he want he wants people to have the time and the uh, interest and the materials to make their life beautiful make make a nice cup for yourself and then you'll like have a nice cup he's not insisting that you buy his nice cup because his nice cup is the best he wants you to be able to make a cup that you can have yeah and that's what i think is important revolutionary yeah i guess the other thing is too you have time to like fuck up on making like 70 cups that suck (laughs) right because like you are not going like you are not the skilled artisan that he is in which like you are going to necessarily make the beautiful thing like or you're going to make the thing that's beautiful to you because like you know you put the effort into it but like fundamentally right like it is this this like how do you create like how are you valuing like your own artistic output well i don't know what's sort of wild to me is in hannah's like list of um artistic endeavors that he was involved in one of them was like homekeeping and homemaking and that 
to me is like so different than practicing a, um, a craft where you make a physical object um, in the same way that like, if you make, if you're trying to make a cup a bunch of times and like you just make a bunch of bad cups, it's like that um, same energy is as transient as the energy that goes into homekeeping. Um, uh, no, that's yeah. it. Yeah, like the, the me being like critical just to be critical, like is, is thinking like of like the other parts of your presentation where you're talking about like, yeah, he had servants. Yeah, he didn't treat his factory great, but he, you know, just found ways to, to justify it. But it's like, perhaps he could have synthesized a way to um, involve all of these like servants and workers under him. Perhaps like there could have been um, like, I know he's it's under capitalism and it's like, it, it can be very fraught to, to do that. Um, but perhaps like there was some sort of synthesis he could have figured out to um, it. Yeah. Direct, directly like um, raise. Yeah. I don't know raise up his his servants and his workers well i mean for the time it was pretty progressive though like i think he kind of did too especially by moving them like that when he brought a hundred workers to the merton abbey he was he was moving a hundred workers and their entire families to this beautiful village to live there out of london and work at his nicer factory so he That's was able to do that for all of over a hundred people and their entire families who worked at the firm. Yeah, I, I'd love to read, yeah, read more about that and read some of their testimonies and I mean, it, it, interesting. I mean, that's progressive for today, right? Like when you think about it, right? At the end of the day, like existing within the economic pressures that we do to be able to say like hey you know what like we're gonna make this move and it's gonna be a lot but i'm going to invest in you because you care about me like no company does that even today like <laughs> so to say that he was doing it a hundred years ago like you know whatever 140 years ago or whatever it is like bravo i was i was watching this um this documentary series rotten on netflix and there's um one about wines and they, they're kind of critical of this Chinese wine company a little bit that like is moving um, an impoverished, it wasn't Uyghur Muslims, it was a different type of like Chinese Muslim, like from like an impoverished, more urban area to work in these like vineyards um, as like, farm hands or whatever and it and like there's on the one hand yeah you're pulling folks out of poverty on the other hand is it imperial <laughs> i don't know like it's like i would rather hear from the workers themselves about like if and i and they talk to the workers in the documentary a little bit and the and the workers are like yeah this is great this is much better than my life before um you know but would they have you know chosen to be a, a vineyard maker if they had other prospect any like literally like any other prospects or other things like um 
I don't know. You're still like a boss is what I'm saying. You're still. Well, yeah. 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 Of course. But like, also like there, like there is a difference, at least in my opinion of like, Hey, we're like this kind of weird, like handcrafted artisan guild, like factory creating one of a kind works of art where you're getting to like do everything from sanding to assembly as opposed to like farm labor in which I, like, I take the deal fucking uh, frankly either way I'd take the deal <laughs> <laughs> like, if I if I can you know you got a fucking home and you're set for life and it's and the hours are fine <laughs> there's a really interesting spinoff that happens which is called the Roycroft Institute in New York upstate New York um, and it's also going to be in the book by this this man Hubbard and he employs all of the youth in the area um, to be in his workforce and he it's pretty he's like oh it's great because instead of these people paying to go to trade school I'm teaching them for free by employing them <laughs> Um, and paying them a little bit but also he like and then he had this whole like really inclusive thing where he was giving lectures and he was hosting feasts and stuff and so people were maybe not always getting money they were maybe getting like a ham <laughs> uh, because he had a really and like he I, I'm, I'm in the middle of a biography about him um, because he has a wild story and he's he actually becomes really disliked I think because he does have a he calls himself the Frau he's the father of of the Roy Crofters um and they all it's a highly capitalistic uh arts and crafts commune where he pretty much controls all of the people who work for him and doesn't necessarily pay them but just like gives them a place to sleep and gives them food to eat and he's like well they were just impoverished teenagers until they met me and now they're like totally good book binders and like he had the same ideas as Morris were like oh no you don't have to just be like sanding one chair all the time if you get tired of of sanding a chair you can go throw some pottery um go through that's cool go throw some pottery uh what it kind of reminds me of like google where it's like yeah oh, if you're tired of coding uh here's a fucking foosball table here's yeah, video games sure. <laughs> yeah the i mean it's the idea of like the most benefit like you know the the thought that the best kind of situation is to be subservient to like an enlightened or benevolent despot like right at the end of the day like shit's gonna be bad so hopefully our rulers at least like aren't cruel sure yeah but also um none of them could even afford to purchase any of the pots that they were making of course too yeah yeah the other side of this like wine documentary like the, the rotten episode i was watching is um in france they um there is this region particular region of france that makes like the kind of mid uh like or lower cheaper like table just regular table wine and how they're suffering from like 
wines coming in from Spain and then and now China um, competing with them. And but they're like an extreme like there's they're like a group of the farmers are like extreme like um, like you know uh, they they go and sabotage they 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 like go and sabotage the Spanish um, imports like they'll go to the border and like wreck the trucks or like they'll go like wreck the facilities that's distributing the Spanish wine um, to to preserve their lifestyle of like you know subsistence farming and then also like co they have like literal cooperatives set up of all the whole region where they share profits and they share labor and um, and they they have this like sort of balance but that balance is being threatened by you know yeah globalization and mm -hmm. um, and global trade so it's like a, that's sort of like the little the literal like inverse that's happening where like yeah you can like carve out this um, cooperative situation where everybody feels like there's kind of like equal labor going in and um, but then you're always like, yeah, threatened by like global capitalism. I guess the guild system really protect was trying to protect against that. And it was able to more before global capitalism, because you could be like, no, 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 you're not selling wine for $10. We're the winemakers and we sell. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it, it, is, it is exactly that. But it, it, and it, and they, and cause they're France and they're really fucking militant on that shit. They were able to like kind of defend them, their way of life for a really, really long time. And they, you know, to this day, like still mm -hmm. like, um, yeah. Some of the guilds probably had secret knowledge too, like they could leverage, like if you're just growing some some kind of food and so, or making wine. Well, I don't know. There's probably technical knowledge with all those things, but it seems like the guilds could really hoard their technical knowledge. It wasn't only, like guilds weren't only consolidating skills though. A lot of the time they... Uh, at this at this time at least they were making um like kind of standards that would become legal frameworks because um at least i know i know a little like of the history of painting guilds like there would be people that would claim to be making um supplies for artists right and the, and they would just be like yeah, I crushed up a bunch of like plates that had blue enamel on them. And then I called it blue paint and it's not. And it, and I, but then I sold it to you for the amount that you can get for the actual thing. And so uh, the work um, of the guilds would usually be like, okay, um, we're going to go through all of these purveyors. We're going to go through um, also all of these artists. If there was an artist that was like, you know, uh, there's like false claims or like, uh, you know, saying like, oh yeah, I made that or, and you didn't make it. <laughs> like people could, it was easier to get away with that kind of stuff. And so there was sort of, um, 
uh, I don't know. It was like legal protection before there was anything on the books. Right. And before, like, before we really had an understanding of like the the proletarian union as an organization. Yeah, now there's now there's licensing. Like, if you want to be a barber, you have to apply to the state and pass a like thing that says you're not going to get some bloody tool on somebody else's head or something yeah (laughs) yeah you practice long enough not to (laughs) kill anyone yeah and it's it's only when it reaches other countries where the law doesn't cover where like the the sort of like disruption starts and the the cracks um of the old guard like are able to be pierced like I think like yeah that like this is this is sorry this is like yeah something I'm sort of working out but it's like it seems like oftentimes like you can get like a really big like revolutionary like um area of in 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 particular times um but like something doesn't pass on um and it doesn't um continue and I don't know why that is all the time but it, it, it feels like it's you know a lot of these movements are led by people who like um once it's like it's almost like once they hit a certain like class position then it it shifts and, and changes and they stop fighting for it. and then their kids don't experience what they experienced and it doesn't pass on or whatever yeah it's very a lot of these things, they do seem like they just pop, you know, it's a, it's going upstream against a lot of other forces that I think that stuff is fascinating when somebody who you, who like was committed to ideals kind of folds over the other way and like what brings that about. Can I contribute something here? I wasn't sure if I should just listen or not. Hi. I um that point though, the way it becomes aestheticized is actually a piece of the tension. So it doesn't matter if William Morris's purest intention was to create idyllic, to create repetition and pattern, to sort of connect with um the betterment of humankind towards nature capitalism's ability to absorb any aesthetic gesture and commodify it and find new purpose for it is highly, that is a highly adaptive thing of capitalism. And so Morris is also working on sort of refined shape, repetition, pattern, that all predates him. I mean, none of this is original, but the notion of like how that can create a betterment for culture and society. It's never a surprise to me that those things are not common or understood. It's never a surprise to me. I just wanted to, I guess, add that. I mean, the, the shakers were in 17, whatever, the society for true inspiration is in Iowa. were like the oldest running American commune ever. 
And like, they also, same thing, the, what it did to the automation to be like, you're going to actually only produce the, the leg. Yeah, so it was fucking great if a worker, who cares if they actually enjoyed the craft, if they got to actually produce something from start to finish, that that might have a quality of life in it that's different. And I think that there's a piece here, I'll stop rambling now, there's a piece here that I think is really interesting, the assumption <laughs> that people will make art, the assumption that people will make craft, will do something. I, I, I know it is expansive for many, and I also know there are many constraints as to why it doesn't happen that are not about bourgeois or like class. It actually is other points of entry. It can be real wounding, even about drawing. So it's before we even get to the building with the hand, most adult, many modernized adults are deeply wounded around the process of making. So it's not even a question of what do you do in your leisure time? In your leisure time, you scroll. You know, in your leisure time, you're drawing. Fuck no. So I, I think that the, the desire that the human might find something expansive in art is a thing that many people are interested in. And I actually think America, this nation state in the last set of years is actually reviving a kind of arts and crafts movement with the handmade and the way that it's sort of, you know, flares up in different ways, upcycling, remake, thrifting, like the people making detritus into sculpture and selling it, you know, like this, it's- The Etsy community. Sure. Yeah. Even yeah. like anthropology or whatever, <laughs> like the yeah. fake version of it. And that uses the aesthetic of it, but it's, yeah. it's still mass marketed. Oh yeah. I mean, it's all like every place I've ever worked at was just like loving having like a white girl with crazy glasses in Brooklyn you know, sanding a, sanding a chandelier down to like handmade perfection. And it's my, my only like, cause having, having had the experience also of taking a product from start to finish as like, as your, as your work as an artisan, like if you're not the one designing it though, there's like still a pretty fundamental lack of connection that you're going to have to it. I guess that's my only thing. Um, <clears throat> like, yeah, never mind. I like what you were saying about patterns, Kim, and that is really sticking with me. And I'm just thinking about um, like one of the one of the things that Morris had in the red house that nobody that no one in the house made was a Persian rug, and I'm just thinking a lot of, about. Persian rugs and um, designs in mosques and tiling and like this cosmic pattern, this really spiritual pattern that's kind of all over Muslim culture. And it's, and it's, um, no one, no one owns it. It's, it's not, you know, trademarked and it's, it teaches you about like the symmetry of life or like the way that things fit together. It's really spiritual and it's used as a map in that way. A lot of times. Yeah. And it does literally get passed on. I mean, like the inventors yeah. of numbers, like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so it is, it's kind of timeless to be a, a creator of these natural, either geometric or 
you know, nature inspired patterns. And it's definitely still a practice. I mean, people come up with new pattern designs every day. But it's a craft. It's not seen as high art, even in these like immaculate Persian rugs. Yeah, that's a big contention with like teaching art history in general, which I, it's, yeah, it's interesting that William Morris fits into this, but yeah, it's, it's always been like, yeah, traditionally like stuff that women did wasn't part of like the fine art history canon. Um, so I feel like that that obfuscation definitely just happens, um, which was another kind of contention I'm I, um, like kind of just pinging in my little oh, yeah. um, brain. <laughs> <laughs> there, I forget. Um, I'm a, I'm a terrible. I'm a ter I'm a Swiss cheese brain. Um, but I put a book in the um, reading recommendations channel that is about the um, about the politics of craft, oh. and uh, it yeah it talks about it talks about how like traditionally feminized modes of production are um ha have historically been valued at lower but also that there are all of these um like kind of mixtures of the american dream being uh be being kind of synthesized into craft movements where it's it's like it's not only the like every individual should be able to make things for themselves, but it's also like pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Mm -hmm. And like, you can make the bootstraps that you pull yourself mm. up on. Uh, thank you, Vinny. Vinny said it. Yes. Craft in American history by Glenn Addison. Thank you. <laughs> well, and the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like literally is Etsy, right? The, the commodification of, maybe something that you just enjoy doing and then you realize that maybe you can make money from it, make a living from it, quit your job, you know, like. Oh, five, five to nine, the Dolly yeah. fucking Super Bowl. But there, but there were also all of these stories from American reconstruction where people who were trying to like m make an economy for themselves after slavery found that there was a huge struggle because it was like um it, it was like do we decide to continue laboring after we've been put to labor or do we decide to um take a more political route and and communicate how to build a different society but without like enacting it because physically laboring keeps you in the position that you are viewed in as as just like the the help um but then there was all these stories of people who would like um get really good at making dresses and then you know uh secretly whatever like behind the scenes be making all of these gowns for like the first lady or something and it would just be like, oh, well, that's one form of liberation, even though it's gotten us to this point of like, um, 
you know, still maintaining capitalism. Yeah, it's individual liberation. Like, yeah, like finding, yeah, I mean, it sucks because, yeah, a lot of the times, like, people couldn't, like, do things under, you know, if people knew that they were, like, African-American, it, it wouldn't, it, like, often, uh, they couldn't pursue these things. Um, but, there, yeah, there's all these stories, like, it reminds me of, like, queer history, too, where it's, like, yeah, um, uh, you know, he was a, he was a trans man, and nobody knew, ever, yeah. until the very end, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it's almost like if you if you had I mean this kind of going I guess like drifting out but it's like if you can make something really well and people see that and value that then at least like yourself doesn't get um scrutinized in the same way like if you are if you are in the queer community, if you are like, you know, coming from an oppressed group somehow, but you make something really well and then you put that into society, you also like have to, uh, people have to contend with your value then if they find out that you make it. Oh, it's true. I mean, yeah, you're, yeah, because it, that, I mean, you're kind of getting at, like, um, like, yeah, the kind of contention with, like, representation, which is, like, um, yeah, to, yeah, to, to be seen and acknowledged by, like, the bullshit, you know, heteropatriarchy, white supremacist status quo, like Obama or something, where it's, like, but, it, See, but Obama is different because yeah. he doesn't make anything. <laughs> no, well, yeah. But to, to, <laughs> to, to that narrative, to that narrative would be like, he worked so hard as a lawyer and... He makes a podcast <laughs> with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus. It is, it is just sort of bootstrap stuff, but applied to a marginalized group or... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure if Obama made a craft, he could sell it on Etsy. Buy it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the whole thing with Kamala Harris's stepdaughter. Like, she's... All right, I'm done. <laughs> what? What did she do? Oh, no, they're... She's an Etsy person, too. Oh. <laughs> I think it's awesome. <laughs> I think I'm not understanding maybe the diss. Um, because I... I she... I think that the thing about aesthetics is actually really important not to just be like maybe too heady about it because she's actually that space. And right now we, there is a making culture that is desiring to appropriate anything that is not high that then is going to get sucked into quote unquote high culture and thus expensive culture really fast. Like that, that mesh mash is like, so active right now there is nothing about values that lives in aesthetics nothing like we are so far behind beyond that as a culture so like actually if you have somebody whether they're on etsy or you know a fucking high-end designer what their actual what are the living what are the conditions of their workforce if they're a studio artist what are the conditions of their actual workforce and the studio they manage 
How do they do that within a capitalist, within a totally exploitative system that they are a part of? And I do think there are interesting cracks happening with people trying to figure out how to have smaller, it is sometimes an issue of scale within that. And while it, I, I just, the, the stuff around aesthetics, like cottage core is an aesthetic it, it, devoid of noticing how much shit is actually in a cottage. Like actually how much manure and actual fecal <laughs> shit needs to happen on a yeah. farm. You yeah. don't eat cottage core and mushrooms without actual piles of shit, but you don't see that. So again, all aesthetics are removed and devoid from the actual materiality of it. So I'm all for that queer weirdo showing up in all kinds of spaces in mainstream world. Give me a queer weirdo who's going to come out in a weird ass collar that's suddenly going to be a JCPenney's because in a year, the trickle out effect of that will be different. I mean, that's too much of a ramble, but in terms of whatever Kamala's stepdaughter is named, you know, like that, bring that into mainstream. We're going to see it in fucking like weird ass, you know, totally disseminated bullshit. And then in a year, it'll be something else. That's like we, the speed right now is so high. Like the speed of, of, um, of like absorption, like kind of, or like the, like we were talking about before, just absorption into, into spectacle. And yeah, like, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Maybe if we just like speed up that dial a bit, we'll get somewhere. But <laughs> also acceleration is also not my lane. Like, <laughs> like, like cottage, cottage core is as old as Marie Antoinette. Oh my God, but like, no one's making that meme. <laughs> are they not there's no way that i just thought of this it's i i'm constantly looking for the horsey play in the cottage core scene and it is not happening <laughs> so. american public education system <laughs> maybe that's like a niche a very specific niche though <laughs> yeah i don't know i, I hope people are linking this stuff garden gnome who was the original hermit was someone who was hired to live in your yard and be like this aesthetic, like old, old poor sage who lived in the woods. But then also Marie Antoinette like had her little cottage house and she was so proud of her chickens. And she like thought she like was taking care of their eggs and stuff, but like her servants would wash the poop off the eggs. She like had no idea. Well, that's also right? <laughs> no, I think that is cottage core, but also like getting back to William Morris, his like desire to do like natural dyeing and um, the housekeeping, homekeeping. Like he was, if he had all of those servants, also he was only doing like the very choicest tasks. Oh yeah, I mean he didn't have all. I think I read that he had maybe two people living in his home that helped with his with keeping his home and then the hundred people were employed at the design firm where they were where they were printing and weaving uh you know textiles and wallpapers and things like that um but yeah no he wasn't I think maybe either I cut out or I misspoke when I said that he was a homekeeper because he wasn't like making the beds. 
or like doing the dishes like he he was doing he was like writing designing books and like design like weaving tapestries and embroidering but he wasn't like cooking dinner wow i straight up misheard you (laughs) because like i feel like that would be incredibly revolutionary to like bring that same energy i don't think i don't think he was I never I have never read anything that said he was doing that and I did just recently when I was doing this presentation found note of him having um in the red house there was ample space for two housekeepers and they it was like a big deal like he gave the housekeepers really big living quarters but it was like enough for two so in this house that was he lived there with his family and two kids and then also um, I think Rosetti and and his wife Lizzie Sedell also lived there, and then they were thinking about building an addition so that his other friends could live there. But then they had like a miscarriage and all this drama, and then they moved to London. Then they all moved to London, and he sold the Red House. Anyway, <laughs> Hannah, did you find that Morris is actually a craftsperson and not just a designer? Uh, what do you mean? That he fabricated things? Like that he actually was doing the stained glass by his physical yeah. hand, that he had a vir- virtuosity of the material. He did. He, he actually wove tapestries. He actually uh, printed things. Um, yeah, he was, he was actually doing, he actually made prototypes of all of the things. Um, yeah. Yeah, like he, he does, I mean, yeah, he designed the furniture and then would build some of it, but then had people building the rest of it. And same with the prints and stuff. Um, yeah, and like the stories of him are like, he's covered his like arms and he's totally covered in dye all of the time. And uh, he had, a, his loom was in his bedroom and he would weave like every day in his bedroom. Um, and he, he had one of his quotes is something about like, uh, you like, you can like something about like judging the character of a man or something about the kind of epic poem that he can make while. Wait, you cut out. Oh yeah. You were saying epic poems, but then you cut out. Oh no, Hannah, come back. Maybe she should stop sharing your screen. You know. Sharing pause. screen. Oh, okay. He wanted he 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 would write epic poems while he was weaving, and he had some kind of like dis quote about how one should be able to write <laughs> epic poems while they're weaving. Um, his poetry's fine. I don't read very much of it. I don't really like poetry that much. I guess. <laughs> But I like, yeah, but I like his speeches and I, I did, I really like um, News From Nowhere. I've listened to the audiobook multiple times. Uh, yeah, but he had, yeah, he had his hands on all of it. Very active, not just designing and really adamant that designers and workers like should like that you should 
be able to do both. He did not like the divorce of designers and um, workers in the factories. Yeah, I, I, I want like, yeah, every everybody to get that like level of education that like, like in, in, in my school, like in my like public high school, things like home ec and tech and like, you know, art and all that was always cut, you know, like all that shit always gets like cut and you really need a balance, I feel like. And, and perhaps like less people like would like just like maybe there would be less despair. Maybe people would be more likely to like do art in their free time if that was like embedded as part of like, um, like really ed- like that, that is a huge part of like education and growing up and like, and everybody finds these things that they, that they are passionate about. And it's not like tied necessarily to like, yeah, learn this because this could maybe be your career. Instead, it's just like a learn this because we all learn this. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking something about- like, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, just that phrase, uh, something like people were wounded in craft or something like that. But what Kim was saying? Yeah. Where it kind of like, I think that's an interesting, uh, like, where is that wounding going? Like, you know, like, is that, is that a, I don't know, like, is that a process that's instituted for reasons or is that just a byproduct of the way stuff is made and like, um, I mean, as you're, as you were saying, okay, like your, your school kind of deleted things that would be leading to that kind of outlet. Yeah, I think Hannah's on like a slight delay from us, but you go ahead, Hannah. I'm sorry. No, you're good, you're good. I was um, I was also just thinking about what Kim had said earlier about people being wounded and maybe not wanting to like go to drawing and uh, or something because not feeling like that's accessible. And I think that there are, like yeah that does seem hard and um there's there's two points I'm getting at one is was in the end of the Albers book where he talks about how drawing is like not really an intuitive thing to go towards like most people most children will want to start working 3D and so I was thinking like yeah you know people who want to just come home and like they don't know what to do with themselves they're just scrolling or whatever they wouldn't take to drawing, but maybe they would like be like, oh, my chair is so uncomfortable. Like, what am I going to do to make a better chair? And then they'll find what they can to scrap together a chair. And if they have, you know, a long free day where there's something, you know, you might be inspired to do something like that and you might not know to call it art, but that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if you're if you're in a culture that like teaches you those skills when you're really young and you have access to it. 
like that's like a, a, a big part of the equation I feel like like if you grew up in a in a town or something where it's like we make furniture and we teach it in the school too like you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I tend to think there's some kind of evil force that is um kind of sp- one thing it ends up always everyone's always sleep deprived and doesn't have any time which it was it's always been more and more over over the years like oh we're, we'll have we'll have all this free time now that productivity is going up and that would be the that would be where this everyone's inner creativity would flourish but then uh <clears throat> goes the other way completely yeah And there is that question of, do you actually need leisure to make art? Do you actually need leisure to even move your hand in 2D or 3D ways? I mean, I think of the funny thing of the, whether or not you even like them or not, the twin twin Oaks commune tofu people, mm-hmm. like there's like, a, there's a morale manager for the tofu factory, you know, and that they're making, <laughs> they're making craft objects of, hammocks to sell as the commodity so what is the commodity be sold but usually it's also like dude there's going to be the job where nobody wants to do the dishes or actually feel suck ass about the job that's at hand so i also agree hannah i don't think that drawing is i just said drawing because it becomes one of those weird things like teaching art with kids and with adults you just go oh People got all kinds of wounds and freaked out even about picking up sculpture, like picking things up and moving them. If it's not perfect, if it doesn't look rational, if it doesn't look logical, all of this sort of stuff goes really off the rails. Yeah, I mean, all of this is still, yeah, under capitalism. So it's like in a in a post-capitalist towards a communist world, hopefully there will be ways to more equitably redistribute these types of tasks. And yeah, like something like, you know, for me thinking about like, um, yes, you do this benevolent thing where you move people from poverty into like a better situation, but then like the people doing the moving are still this like elite bourgeoisie who don't do any of that labor and perhaps if they had a program where they are all like kind of equally participating in all these different things, um, it would be closer towards, um, yeah, to, to this, like, um, to, to communism, which, cause, you know, perhaps under communism, we would like redistribute all of these different things equitably. It wouldn't just be like, um, you have this great, job um as a farm worker or as a dishwasher but the hours are great and it pays you well and whatever like and, and it's just the one thing you do to like you know it would it would be more like you yeah you do this in the morning this in the you know <laughs> um this in 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 the day and this at night you know like maybe there'd be a lot, there'd be a lot more communal aspect to everything. And that would also enrich your life, your, your, not just your inner life, 
um, in your house, but also, yeah, in your community, in your larger place in society or more collective place in society, I guess. I'm still like, I'm still thinking about like this in relationship to this idea of authority because there's, there's always something about like communist efforts that make a loophole for this, like, oh, well, you know, William Morris is writing about you know, his ideas of authority, but he's also the authority. And he's like, well, cl clearly the authority is necessary. And without the authority, <laughs> it might be easier to think about redistribution because everybody's understanding of what they need would be taken into account as an authority unto itself. But then there's always this real sort of um like denial of anarchy that goes on in these types of plans that that's like doesn't really you know i don't know yeah it's hard to, for it to scale like so it's yeah. like they can figure it out um but then like to maintain that they they create an elite they create this this bourgeoisie like kind of planner class. I'm just I'm kind of thinking about China. Just That's <laughs> to <okay>. be clear, <laughs> to be clear, I'm thinking about China and um, the so they have because like it feels like to me like it starts out and everybody is like workers and then once you get into power um, and to maintain what you've gained, you all become the bourgeoisie and then like. And then what do you do? Like you, you do reforms. So you help. Yeah. You but, help there, but there never is a time though, when everybody is workers, there's a time right. when there's like a, an emperor. No, 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 no. I'm not feudal, saying like everybody. Feudalism. No, I'm saying the project, the, the socialist project or the communist pro project. Um, not I know, like but it never, yeah, yeah. it never exists in a vacuum. It it's coming right. out of just like, you know, if, if we were if we were going to do something different so as not to replicate a system, then by nature, we would have to break the system down. But there's always something about like, well, we can't break the system down that far. I mean, I, I think it also has to do with like, you know, it's easier for us to recognize like hierarchies in clouds and power and all these things. But especially when it comes to communes and things like that, it's uh, you have also have to face the like the way we relate to people is we are programmed to go into hierarchies very much. So, so like, even if there's a, uh, I, I've talked about this book a lot, but like how to do nothing by Jenny Odell, uh, she explores like the idea of like escaping from cities going to communes and she like goes over around a lot there's a review of a lot of books telling experiences with uh communes and something that comes up a lot it's like okay like 
one person makes a commune and then other people come in and then suddenly it's not what they wanted anymore like because they thought it was going to be about making you know everything self-sufficient and it kind of doesn't end up being horizontal anymore because then we you know someone actually owns that land so they can get that stuff so um even beyond just like ideological uh, beliefs it's also about okay how do how do i actually listen to the other person even if there's going to be mistakes because especially because uh we don't actually execute that much uh politics we get end up in a lot of discussions about the ideals and how the revolution is going to be and we don't discuss that much how the compromises we're we're like comfortable doing you know like anarchists are going to have to work with um uh, Marxists, Leninists, anyway, and even inside each uh, group, there's going to be infights and all this stuff, and it's kind of going to have to happen, and how do we, like, not get into just, oh, did you know Stalin didn't do everything on its own? Oh, did you know that uh, Bakunin was anti-Semitic? Oh, like, oh, yeah, you like Hannah Arendt? Yeah, did you know she sucked a Nazi dick? <laughs> Damn, got you! Yeah, unless like one group is literally like, yeah, we are going to do a fucking holocaust on the other group and they're not going to yeah, fucking exist course. anymore. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> compromise you're comfortable with, okay? Not every compromise, <laughs> including genocide. No, I'm just saying like, that's like what it would take to actually quell these. It's like, there's not, there's no way to put it back. in. The but, there's, but there's actually like an interesting bridge here with, William Morris's concept of liberation where it's like if you are capable of making things on your own and everybody is capable of making things on their own then there there gets to be like a point where everyone is is delegating for themselves so in the point where like we're talking about making compromises with each other like that's kind of the point where you could actually achieve a sort of communism like everyone is capable of what they need to do to live and it's about then talking over resources or talking over space or you know i guess this is like it's impossible to scale this sort of thing up because of the way that mechanization and mass production has de-skilled everyone. Yeah, and it's also like, uh, it's something you can only achieve 100% outside capitalism. That's why it's so hard. Like, again, the commune example, someone's going to own that land, so there's going to be tension in that, like, anyhow. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and it's also like, yeah, at least China is, like, thinking about, like, literally like turning the deserts into into farmland like these are like because like there's not enough space necessarily for everybody to make everything and I, like thinking back about the, the communal kitchen example like in in like super like mega city parts of, of all, all sorts of areas of like asia and you know um there are like tons of apartment units where people don't have a kitchen and are already doing that and like you know 
they already live that way. And, and we in, you know, in the West are used to all having our own kitchen at the very least, but there are like a lot of other cultures that don't, haven't gotten to that point and don't, don't they deserve to get to that point? And is there enough space for everybody to get to that point? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this maybe is a all right time to stop the recording. <laughs> We stayed on topic for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did good, I everyone. Have, I think it's a record, actually. Yeah, yeah. that was awesome. Lots of fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun. Lots of fun.